Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chang. Welcome back to the Food and Faith Podcast. This is Derek Weston. Happy to have you back with us. Um, We're going to get into a really great episode today. Uh, I think you'll find this episode really uplifting. Before we get started, a couple of quick announcements. One, just want to remind you that the new home for the podcast is at foodandfaith.org. There you can see all the work of the stories of Food and Faith Media Project, the documentary series The Wilderness Like Eden, and the podcast, and soon there will be a new blog post up there. So check that out, foodandfaith.org. And just want to remind you that if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so at any level. Just go to patreon.com slash foodandfaithpodcast, and you can support the work that we're doing here. Okay, today's guest is Monique Williams. Dr. Monique Williams is a native Houstonian, oldest of three children, born to Mark and Gerilyn Williams. Dr. Monique is ordained in the American Baptist Church and has served in both traditional and non-traditional ministerial roles. As a graduate of Howard, Duke, and Creighton, Dr. Monique is always finding new ways to pour into her local community via business strategy, training and development, and theological musings. Dr. Monique is a lifelong shapeshifter, constantly adapting to new and challenging conditions and carrying with her a passion for serving, supporting, and enriching vulnerable communities by any and all means. Her brother's cancer diagnosis and the ongoing COVID pandemic have informed and fueled her newest interest in returning to God in nature, understanding food and land sovereignty, and curating healing spaces for vulnerable communities. The Heirloom Foundation is Dr. Monique's response to this reconnection to family land and promise made to her grandfather that the family land would flourish for generations to come. This initiative gave Dr. Monique a new commitment to land preservation, community learning, and building legacy. And you're going to hear that whole story in our interview. So with no further ado, here's Dr. Monique Williams. All right, we are here with Dr. Monique Williams. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited. So we begin all of our conversations with this question what is your geography what are the people the places the the food the music um whether that's physical geography or just any of the things that you think of that shaped who you are today and and some of the work that you're doing yes okay so my geography i'm from houston but that doesn't say much um I have a lovely background. My father is Caribbean. My mother is both California and Texas. Hmm. So all of those spaces come together, um, I believe, in my experience and my existence. I have lived here in Houston for quite a while, but for a minute, I was on the East Coast. So the East Coast informs a lot of me. Hmm. I went to Howard University. And so as you can imagine, um, that Black experience has Hmm. um, seen a lot of my who I am or who I am becoming still, even though it's been a long, long time. Um, Music, music. So I am all gospel and all jazz and all R&B and more recently becoming Afrofuturistic in a lot of my taste. I can say the older I get, I'm feeling a little bit more blues and not in the worst way, but in the best way because the blues tell stories, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And and country, country. I am Southern, so there are um, definitely some country notes in there. I identify with mountains. I also identify with the seashore, with farmland, and with urban spaces. So I'm a little bit of everything. I love it. That's great. I think that's I think that's a, a a wonderful awareness of of just how many things have come in to form you and shape you. And uh, I think that's true for all of us. Sometimes we're just not as aware of that as yes. as as you name the story of how the Heirloom Foundation got started is mm-hmm. a pretty remarkable one. So I I would love it if you could just walk our listeners through the journey that led you to starting the Heirloom Foundation. Absolutely. So um, until 2018, I was in a thriving role as an administrator in Arizona. Um, I worked in the foster care agency, in a foster care agency. It was a large agency, 300 children in our care, as young as two and as old as 18 years old. And I 
felt like I was making a difference and I felt like I was in my place, um, in the space where I was designed to be and thrive. And um, that had been for about six years until all of a sudden, at least it was suddenly for me, it came to a stop, it came to an end. And I honestly felt like God said, okay, like, good, you did good, you can go now. I didn't know what that mm. meant, go where? Um, and going meant going back home. I had been away from home almost since I had graduated from high school. I've been back and forth, but never really put roots down at home. So honestly, the fall of 2018, I put in my my four weeks and I said, okay, I think I'm supposed to go home. I don't know what for, but it feels very certain. Mm. So I did. And within a month, I was back home with no true plan except to go back into that industry at some point. I would get back into that industry, get that work going. And so I began to kind of make those efforts. Um, in that time, I started um, a consulting organization where I would just do some training and development for small and mid-sized organizations. As long as they were kind of community-centric, I worked with them. And so I did that, but it wasn't really picking up and I could not figure out why I was home. Like nothing seemed to really come into play. Then the end of that summer, 2019, at this point, my younger brother, I have two, I have a younger and a youngest, the middle brother was diagnosed with cancer for the second time in four years. This time, it was very complex. They could not figure out what it was. He is young. He's strong, 200 plus pounds, six foot, you know, plus. And this cancer came very quickly um, and very strongly. And so in that moment, um, I was called on to be a caregiver. That is when I thought, okay, God, this must have been why you needed me here. So I'm home and I become a caregiver, a primary caregiver for about nine months. I tell everybody that my family was in its own pandemic and had been quarantined long before we knew anything about COVID. Mm. Because of this cancer, we didn't know, we couldn't go anywhere. We didn't want to interact with anybody because we didn't want to bring anything to him. In that time, as he was um, you know, kind of struggling with this and in this particular challenge, my other brother and I were told that at some point we would we might need to donate stem cells we didn't know what that meant but at that point when I was told that um, I went completely clean and plant-based and I began to run I had run a little bit years before um, just you know 5ks nothing really big I'd never really been an athlete but at this point I felt like I was really running for something I was running for my brother's life um, because I wanted to be able to give to him the absolute best I could offer from my body. Yeah. And I didn't want them to have to go back and do it again. I didn't want them to say it wasn't enough. I wanted to give my best. So went plant-based, um, went outside, started running. As you can imagine, the running became very therapeutic, being able to kind of breathe and and be outside and, and to pay attention to things that were outside when we had been in hospitals on and off for months. And I began to kind of reconnect and just talk to God a little differently. Um, it was, it became very conversational, lots of questions, but mostly, you know, I felt like God was speaking to me and giving me lots of peace in the land around me. I'm in Houston. We were in the medical center. So it's not like, you know, I'm in this beautiful forested area. I'm running through the streets <laughs> of Houston, right? <laughs> Still connecting with God through the, the air and through trees and birds and all of this stuff. Um, because I feel like God knew that if I feel her, then she can continue to be this caregiver that I'm calling her to be. Because, of mm. course, I'm at empty at that point. Mm. So I'm running, I'm clean, I'm doing all of the right stuff. And I mean, thank God come to find out that they were able to produce what they needed in his own body. So they didn't need what I had, but it was a start for me reconnecting um, to a space that I hadn't really, really delved into for quite a while and reconnecting with nature and God in that way. And so the day that we left the hospital, he had gotten a stem cell transplant. He was on his way in recovery. I want to say that day they shut down all the hospitals for COVID. Mm. 
So we mm. had been in our own pandemic. We had been quarantined um, as a family. We're thinking we're going to be able to get back out, you know, and see people again. And we're shut down now universally. Um, right. We're shut down globally. So now that kind of redefines things for me again. Okay, now I want to get back into the, you know, to this foster care field that I had, had left and loved. But what I offered in that field was a lot of training, development, leadership development. And as you can imagine, companies were not really looking into that. They were just looking at bread and butter at that time. Right. Right. Surviving. So, right. They weren't looking for people to enhance, um, um, enhance culture, right. Or to shift culture. They just wanted to keep their doors open. So once again, I'm, I'm searching. Um, now, mind you, I have a bachelor's, I have a master's, master's degree, I have a doctorate degree, and I am searching. I cannot seem to find something, you know, that will allow me to operate in the way that I know I can operate as an administrator and as a professional. So you can likely imagine how that made me feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm getting exhausted mm-hmm. <laughs> again. It's a new exhaustion. First, the exhaustion was, you know, coming home and not knowing what was going to, you know, what was going to come of it. Then the exhaustion was taking care of my brother. Then the exhaustion was COVID. And now COVID is kind of closing these doors for me. And so I'm pushed even further outside, like many people at that time, right? People start to guard and they started to, to do things outside. Well, I did. I did begin to garden. Um, I did begin to kind of put my hands in the ground a bit. But I also... The one place I was able to travel safely um, was to the country where my grandfather lives. About an hour and a half away from Houston is a small town called Somerville, Texas. That is, you know, the country. So I'm out there, open air, um, 17 acres of land, and I just get a chance to be somewhere and um, just just out of the urban space, out of, um, I think, the the not necessarily worry or concern, but everything kind of felt like it was closing in on me. So I was able to kind of go and be and sit with my grandfather, although we were, you know, socially distanced before the vaccine and and just connect with the land. And I had always had this connection, but you know, there's something about connecting when you're in a desperate place, mm-hmm. in a desperate situation. Yeah. You connect deeper and faster, right? And so that land started to feel like something to me. And I began to ask questions and just talk to my grandfather. We we just chatted up. My grandfather's 91 and completely clear-minded. Hmm. This man still quotes dates and exact times. He quotes <laughs> names. He quotes streets in California where he used to live. So we have good conversations. Hmm. And in some of that dialogue, we've been again talk about the, the land. And he just, you know, being 91, just saying, you know, you know, what do you think you all might do with the land? Um, you know, once I'm gone, what do you all, you know, do you think you might have any plans or any thoughts? And I didn't have a plan, but I decided that moment I would make a plan because I needed to give my grandfather some reassurance and some certainty that things would be well. And so that conversation planted the seed for the Heirloom Foundation. I didn't know what I would do, but I did know that I wanted to resource this land so that we could use it um, for some sort of community initiative. And to resource it, of course, requires money, requires some sort of funding, of course, but just support. And so the Heirloom Foundation was originally about, let me try to figure out how to raise money to maybe um, kind of give back into this land, to bring it back to life. We have two small ponds. We've got all of this land. We've got some cows. Um, you know, bring it back to life, resuscitate it, you know, maybe create a community garden. You know, those were my general thoughts. But then the, just the more I got into it, the more I began to do some research and just look into people in my generation and before who are interested in work with the land. I got really excited about eco-theology mm-hmm. and this idea of how God has imparted God's self in creation for these times, these moments, these this need for healing and connection, that it's not a mistake that the wind feels the way that it does and the sun feels the way that it does and the ground feels the way that it does because God is in it. Um, and so I became really excited about that idea. Um, and I also became excited about the idea of possibly just kind of ushering us back to the land. I think it's a bit of a renaissance, but I do think that 
um, the time of enslavement have separate has separated us from the value of just being on land, not yes. producing, not doing anything per se, just being connected. I feel like we are separated from that idea. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I started thinking about it. And so I was like, well, come heirloom could also do that. We can kind of usher people back into that space. And so right now, um, the long-term vision, of course, is still that community garden, is still being able to kind of draw people into a beautiful healing space to allow for um, those who are differently able, those who are marginalized, those who are vulnerable, um, those who just need a space, caregivers who need to rest just to be somewhere and to find and experience healing that's long term but short term i do want to continue to create virtual spaces and eventually more in-person spaces where we're having dialogue about how people have employed nature um, to work through and past their trauma Mm. because Mm. we all experience trauma of course but in our community we experience it much differently than most. And I think that it takes a unique space for us to work that out. And so I began that dialogue actually on um, IG Live just a month or so ago in my nature. And we've been having great conversations. People have experienced domestic violence, child um, abuse, they've experienced depression. And many of them have said, I've gone back to the earth. Whether it's a natural practice, a natural ritual, a natural product, or a natural space, we are inclined to that because we have always been inclined to it. And and God has always been there, and our roots are deeply um, dug into those natural spaces. We just haven't talked about it lately, and so that is what I'm hoping to also offer through Heirloom. So that's the long long and short of it. (laughs) I... Love that story. I love that story. Um, and I wrote down a million questions. So yes. I'm going to try and get through as many of them as I can. Um, because because you're you're sharing you're sharing the story just just sparks so many things for me. You you kind of talked about as your your brothers in the hospital and and your your running and your experience even in in the urban setting, you're yes. experiencing God through being outside and being in, through nature. You're your seminary trained, been yes. been in the church. Was yes. was that a first experience of experiencing God through nature in that way? Good question. It was not the first experience, but it was, I can say, the one of the first times that I felt like God was like filling me back up. So yes, you go to a mountain, you know, you go to the foot of a mountain or a mountaintop, you're going to experience God. I live in Arizona. I went to Sedona all the time and, you know, just was just there and knew God was present. But I felt like in that time, you know, as I mentioned before, desperation requires you to, not requires you, forces you to connect um, a lot deeper. And so I felt like I felt God speaking to me a bit differently. I felt God filling in some gaps and some holes um, that were clearly formed by the experience that I was in. And also this reminder from God to say, um, I need you to stay full in order to give. Um, I dealt with a lot of caregiver guilt, this idea that I was the one able to move and go and have freedom and he couldn't. And so for a while, I kind of joined him in his box. I felt like it was my duty to kind of lay there with him. Mm. It was my duty to suffer with him the way that he was suffering. And in running and going out, God was giving me permission to live well for myself so that I could care well for him. Mm. So we were having a whole different conversation during that time before it was like, oh, God is great. Yes, it's, you know, Grand Canyon. <laughs> I, I feel you, God, you know, and then but this time it was like, I'm, I'm filling you for a purpose. I'm giving you permission to to live and thrive for this purpose. Um, I'm, I'm giving you space to be for this purpose. And so it felt very much it was very therapeutic. It felt like therapy. Mm. It felt like God saying, like, I'm answering your questions. What else do you have for me? I'm filling your gap. What else do you need? Yeah. Wow. I I, I love that idea of 
nature as therapy, of being yes. in nature as therapy, as being in nature as being um being a trauma-informed experience in some yes. ways of, yes, of, of, absolutely. Being, of, of allowing yourself to feel the pain, feel the hurt, yes. feel the yes. brokenness. Yes. Um, but this is a this is a situation, and I think it's it's true that so many of us have those moments of awe in mm-hmm. nature, but mm-hmm. you're also talking about a moment of you're being the soil that was being prepared. Yes. This this isn't just that 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 awe of being in nature that's that's what you're being recharged yes. and yes um and 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 uh, it sounds even like an experience of call yes um in, yes. in in being in nature yes and i and i love that you said that because i think that we um tend to look at kind of like our call narrative whether or not we are in ministry or not but we use that terminology mm-hmm. in ministry right the be called um, that we think that it's a one-time event. That's right. Um, that we are called once and we're supposed to have clarity in that moment and then move forward in that um, with no question. And that just is not true. God calls us and calls us again and calls us again as we pivot in the work that we've already doing as we're becoming more of ourselves. Mm. And so I do agree with that, that idea of kind of being called again. Um Another terminology, another term that I use um, in that experience is being remembered Mm. to be placed back together. So one, I'm remembering God, right? I'm reflecting on God. I am recounting who God is um, and who God is being in that moment. But God has been literally piecing me back together for a greater and higher and continued purpose. So the idea that God through nature remembered me is also a big part of that experience. Wow. Yeah. That's beautiful. (laughs) So I want to, I want to go to your grandfather. Um, This is, this is something that has been on, actually been on my heart and mind a lot. My, Mm -hmm. um, my grandfather had a garden basically my whole, my whole life. Um, and he passed away, um, when I was, I was still in junior high. I think I was, I was 12, 12, 13. Um, but I remember him in the garden and like, that's, that's my, that's my memory of him is Mm -hmm. him in the garden. My grandmother for her was flowers. She, Mm. and, 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 and she also had, uh, I don't know if, if, uh, you remember in ET, the, the movie ET, there's a scene of the geranium dying and ET touches the geranium Mm -hmm. and it comes back to life. Mm -hmm. That was was my grandmother. Yes. I love that. that. (laughs) Yes. And, and I, I, I bring all this up because, you know, there, there are things in my current work that, um, I wish I wish I had them around today to ask them questions yes. about their relationships with the land and yes. the things that they experience. So yeah. I'm just I'm just really interested in hearing like what those conversations are like with your grandfather yes. of thinking about his experience of the land and what the land taught him and even even finding a love for the land with the history yes. that we have and the history yeah. that we share of of oppression on the land um yes i, I just i mean it it, mm-hmm. it 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 feels like i'm asking a, a <laughs> eavesdropping kind of question but i i do i want to kind of eavesdrop on some of those conversations yeah. with your grandfather what was what were those conversations like absolutely so my grandfather is not a very tall man, but a very big man. He's literally like Paul Bunyan. I mean, kind of like legendary. The stories he kind of tells, everybody's like, really, Papa? Like, <laughs> so, you, so you really wrestled down uh, a cow? You know, like, you know, did you do that? <laughs> And then you talk to him, you know it's real. You know, like, you know, this is what he, that he's always, you know, lived and experienced. And so original conversations around land has to do with like he's talked about him just being a child and him running about him being more independent of course than any of us could imagine um a a 10 year old being um likely was like you know shooting down this that and the other all kind of <laughs> animal i mean you know what i'm saying like they they were kind of grown at 10 yeah. so he's told those stories he's told stories about going up to the creek and or going up to the lake and pushing aside a cow chip to drink some water you know um he has told <laughs> stories um about his you know his 
his mother and, you know, grandparents growing things on the land and also him owning land very young. I want to say he left when his mother, when he was maybe 15 or 16 and came back a few years later and purchased a plot right next to hers, you know, um, it being, I think he said it may have been something like $24 and how one week he paid $12, next week he paid $12 and wow. owned land. Wow. So he always had this understanding of the value of land um, and had always been rather responsible when it came to that. So those stories I've grown up with, the stories or communication that we now have are practical. He has, like your grandmother, that's this touch. <laughs> he would grow zucchini. I would come home maybe from, from DC to, you know, to visit and he would have zucchini that he's grown. He's like, take this with you, baby, you know, back on the, back to DC. I would put this in my um, suitcase. The zucchini is so large that they <laughs> have to search it to see what this thing is. And it is like the size of a watermelon. And I'm like, I promise you, like, <laughs> It's just a zucchini, you know, but he, he would just grow things and it didn't, it never dawned on him that what he planted wouldn't grow. And mm. then if it didn't, it just didn't. So it just wasn't a lot of, you know, oh, you know, failure, this or that. You plant and grow, um, one for him for survival, because you need to eat and two to give away. He is, mm. I don't think he's ever sold one thing he's he's grown. Mm. It was always, I got cabbage, y'all come and get this cabbage. I can't eat all this cabbage. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting because when I first started thinking about heirloom i brought in um a scientist from prairie view AM. we have a, a family connection at prairie view my father worked and went there my mother went there my brother went there um so i thought i'd have him come in and, and test the the ground let us know you know what we're working with the organic matter you know ph and all that good stuff yeah. and we did that you know we found out what area was the best and everything like that but what i found was interesting was the area that he said was not the best land was where my grandfather always grew stuff. He, <laughs> I was like, I feel you. Like I'm telling you, telling me that this is not the best ground, but this is the only place he's ever really grown, and it would thrive. He is a, a farmer's almanac person, so he'll ask if I say, "What do I, you know, what should I plant this year?" He'll say, "Did you look at the almanac? What does it say? <laughs> you know, plant this at night, plant this in the day." He says, plant your root, um, your root vegetables on one day and your vegetables that are going to grow up on another day. You know, mm. um, he has this natural, innate knowledge of land and earth that I know he did not read up on. I know he didn't Google. I know he did not go on YouTube. This man just knows what he knows because it is in him. Mm. So we have a lot of dialogue about that. And he loves now that I'm talking to him about things practically. So we'll call and talk like I planted the greens and they're not going fast enough. What should I do, Papa? You know, and he'll have these these ideas. He'll say, you know, you need to go ahead and break some some eggshells and put it around these these other plants so you can kind of prevent the snails, you know, that kind of stuff that you yes, you do hear online you can google and find it out but he already knew that mm -hmm. <laughs> you he didn't know? need google <laughs> yes yes and so yeah so his stories are kind of all about but always having been connected to nature never any fear of it he calls himself a country boy he has lived in houston he has lived in california but he currently lives in the country and he just loves the pace of it he creates his own pace um and he's just full of practical knowledge just do this like this and if it works great and if it doesn't it's okay and that for me is good mm. we're in a generation of us that are suffering from i mean we're type a personalities right we're we're suffering from imposter syndrome we're suffering mm. from depression and everything has to look this way <laughs> and for him it's like not so much Mm. not so much mm. so yeah that's kind of what i get from him and it changes from um chat to chat oh you might want to know this mm. um you know you mentioned a little bit about kind of race and and our connection to the land in that way uh especially as it comes to racism and so he has told some stories too about family being um kind of swindled out of their their land or their money because someone has purposely 
targeted them in some way, form or fashion. So we, of course, are not um, excluded from that experience at all. He tells a story of a cousin who had inherited land, had no idea what that meant, had no background on how to care for it and had no additional money, lots of land. He had, there was a sheriff, a white sheriff that watched him and, and wanted that land and found out he had this land. So he goes to him, he was young, knowing that he didn't know anything about this land. So he said, hey, let me just pay you cash. Here, I'm going to pay you full cash for this land. I'll take it off your hands. He's thinking this is a great deal. I don't have to worry about this land. They exchange. And then um, that my, my grandfather will tell it like this. He'll say that was on a Saturday morning. This is how his, his memory is. <laughs> Saturday night, this cousin goes out drinking. The sheriff knows that this cousin is a drinker. So he goes and watches him while he's drinking. It gets to a point where the sheriff decides, okay, I'm going to arrest him for public intoxication. And he arrests him and he charges him the same amount for bail bail as he wow. as he had paid for the land. Wow. That's one story. Mm. That's mm. one story. And you know, these things are intentional. That's that is yeah. that's systematic. That's let right. me think about a way. This is not happenstance. Right. And so that's one of many. But yeah, yeah, definitely mm. have experienced that. Mm. It's so important that we keep these stories alive yes. that our grandparents have told us. And I think it's even, I think it's crucial that we're especially telling the stories of rural Black people. Like yes. we, there's a, there's a, there's a so much documenting, you know, life kind of post great migration in, mm -hmm. in the urban centers, but, mm -hmm. but there is a story of rural African-Americans that is being lost. Yes. Uh, and those kinds of stories of being swindled and cheated out of land, but also of having natural connections to the land, having an almost ancestral connection to the land yes. of knowing what to do with the land of, of just kind yes. of that being ingrained in them. Um, and, and we need to keep both sides of all those stories going. And it's um, so important. And, and I, I want to also kind of just, like as we're as we're talking kind of along these lines, uh, I've been teaching this class on food and race, and and I kind of begin the class talking about our connection, to, our connection or lack thereof to nature. Mm -hmm. And yes. one of the books that I use is um, Carolyn Finney's uh, Black Faces, White Spaces. Mm. Uh, it's a wonderful book, and yeah. and I I think that there is. You kind of talked about it as you were as you were telling the story of heirloom. I think there's a sense to which it's progress yes. for us as people of color to move away from the land. Like yes. that's 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 the that's the story we've been told mm -hmm. that it's it's progress. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's 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 led to a lot of dysfunction for us I think yes. it's led to a lot of just we're, we're losing a lot we're losing yes. we're missing a lot so I'm just kind of interested in 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 your work of reconnecting yes uh black people particularly to the land like what are some of the challenges that you face in in getting people to to rethink about that connection right the challenges I think would come with what we have mentioned already this this idea the the success of our enslavement mm. we don't want to put those two words together but it was so successful that the things that we did naturally that the country still thrives off of the way that we planted the way that we you know um approach land um the way that we were sustainable now they've gotten away from that with the industrial revolution and all that other stuff but what was successful in the enslavement was I'm almost, I almost feel like it made us hate the land, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We were required to produce things um, under duress, under such conditions that, you know, a civilized man doesn't do that, mm. right? Mm. A civilized family, a civilized, you know, um, you know, husband and wife will not allow their children to work on the land because civilization means that someone else does it, but it definitely does not mean that I put hand to plow. It doesn't mean that um, that I sweat for these things. And so we have separated ourselves from it um, or have been separated from it because, as you said, progress means as far from the land as possible. And now it has tricked us 
because this area, I want to kind of be specific about our area, the area that uh, of Somerville, where we, our family land is, we are on a kind of strip of road called Centerline. And Centerline is an, uh, is an area where the, um, the government had decided they were going to bring in a, a major freeway. And they were going to come through, and this is not this is not unique, right, to our experience. They're going to come through this um, particular community, and so the community came together and decided that they were going to have to protect their space, and they became a one hundred were distinguished as a one hundred year community. So this is a one hundred plus year community, and so you've got my grandfather and those his age and maybe slightly younger who were invested in saving this land. But now you've got my generation and my mom's generation selling this land Mm. and not feeling as connected to it because it's over there. So this idea that, one, we don't work the land because that's not civilized. I don't sweat, right? There's this (laughs) thing about sweating that, I don't know, we seem to reject. But, you know, hey, Mm -hmm. that's human. Um, that is out of sight, out of mind. So you've got that too. Like, I don't see it. I don't get a chance to go out there. Um, money. We are, we do struggle as a community with not having dollars that last past a, a couple of weeks. And it certainly don't last in our communities more than a couple of hours. And so, you know, offer money that we've never seen before in cash and we're giving away land by the droves. I've got family who inherited hundreds of acres and they are selling hundreds of acres. Wow. So the challenge is this, you know, this, the way that we look down on the effort and the beauty of the land because it's no longer civilized. And that's the language that we were given, right? We looked at that, that idea of of whiteness and said, that's what it is. Um, However, those who are, um, who have benefited from this, this language created by this whiteness, um, have never let go of their land. They didn't say right. anything. They, they held on to it and they they pass it on. Right. But they make you feel like you shouldn't do it unless it's for them, right? And we bought into that. So yes, that idea, the idea that we still struggle when it comes to generational dollars and wealth, um, the fact that it is out of sight, out of mind, because everything that is everything is urban. It's major cities. That's It's moving quickly, right? Those are the things that tend to... I think that people tend to allow to get in the way of the conversation and makes people like me, people like you who have these have these conversations like hippies, like, you know, I mean, Earth, what? Yes, Earth. <laughs> we can't live without it. Yes, sustainability. Yeah. Because without it, we, we won't have it for our children's children. Yes. And so I think that I encounter a lot of intrigue first. Because that's just not what we talk about. Hmm. We talk about being doctors, lawyers, and engineers. We talk about what city you live in, right? We talk about whatever it is that has nothing to do with us having to put um, our hands in the dirt and produce and create. That's so real. Uh, the, the idea that that somehow we would be going backwards to um, work on the land is yeah. is endemic tell me a little bit about uh so i've i i follow you on instagram and mm-hmm. i get i see some of the programs that you you run and i see a lot about self-care and healing and trauma yes this kind of and i know that this is a fairly young program but yeah tell, tell me a little bit about what what the program of the heirloom foundation has looked like so far Yes. So, so far, it has just been on the, we're probably we're still under about 10 episodes, but the program came from the idea that I knew that as we're working on creating the space physically on the farmland, that we would need to create a space virtually. Um, and that we wanted to have a unique space and we wanted to have a space that felt very familiar, felt like home, right? Mm. Um, And so this idea of healing and land, while not new, I think is still newer language to many of us. We're all learning, like as we're doing all these hashtags on Instagram, we're learning (laughs) that there is this eco, you know, eco-theology where people Mm -hmm. are like, what, what Mm -hmm. is that? We're learning about eco-therapists. I ran to an eco-therapist, you know, Mm. Um, we're learning that people may not have 
call their journey a journey to nature, but they're doing it through business. You know, oh, I'm going to begin to do natural products because my brother experienced, you know, this illness and he needed to be without products, without aluminum, right? That to me is still very much connected. And so I feel like stories are sacred. And I feel like I want heirloom to be um, to be a kind of a curator and a, and a holder, you know, a library of of story. Um, we mentioned that before, you know, with my grandfather, with our grandparents. And I feel like as we tell stories, people will find their way in the story. Um, I'm finding that people in Instagram will say, gosh, that's me. Or I didn't realize there was a name for that, right? Because they just hadn't heard anyone talk it through. So this summer, I actually had an opportunity to go to Ohio, um, to the Methodist Theological School in Ohio. And this is in, it's in Delaware, Ohio. And I literally, I mean, this was, people would call it um, happenstance. I call it the Holy Spirit. But I'm interested in eco-theology. And so I wanted to just be somewhere that practiced it. MTSO has a farm on their land. And so I wanted to be there. I wanted to farm with them. I wanted to take a course, you know, and all of that. And so I was able to go there and do that. And I spent one week, literally, I think half of the week was harvesting potatoes. We harvested (laughs) thousands of pounds of potatoes. But this also was coming at the end of a moment of clarity and understanding for me, um, a moment of, I I think, silence, I felt like, you know, from God. And I remember being in this potato field. I'm completely like encrusted in dirt because I think it may have started to rain. And I remember just, just harvesting and, and everything getting very quiet and just pulling and pulling and filling and filling. And once again, getting that same sense that I did when I was running um, for my brother, that God was filling in some gaps um, and remembering me in this space. And so just this idea, I've carried this with me. And so I said, okay, well, well, how can heirloom create the same space? And that's what in my nature is. That's what this programming is. How have you been remembered by nature. And what was it that drove you there? What was the travesty? What was the trauma? Because we could all name at least one. So as I mentioned before, I had somebody who experienced domestic violence and found healing in plants and, and planting and showing others how to do the same thing. I found someone else who had experienced child sexual abuse and then proudly showed me her lemon tree that she grew when she began to be able to talk and tell her story and how this this tree is growing alongside her growth as she's becoming free from this trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard from people who have who are doing work in cannabis because you know as we know as we know many of us are still in prison and this is becoming a trillion dollar industry and we may not have said it before but we've used this particular um, material to find some sort of relief from the world around us. So these things are common. I think it's just important for us to give language to it and to give space for people to work it out. And so we're kind of working it out in um, that virtual space and people are realizing things as they're talking, whether or not they are the, the guests or those who are observing, but they're realizing that they've had these connections or they keep saying, you know, I've got to get back to doing that. And that's our point. I want somebody to say, you know, quietly, they don't say it out loud. I've been through the same thing and I'm going to try what they are doing because I need something. I need relief. I need an answer. I need peace. And I'm getting some of those ideas from this space. So that's what we, you know, that's kind of, it's how it's shaping. Um, And we'll, we'll see, you know, how it is, you know, you kind of begin something and you just watch it shape itself. Um, So we'll see how it goes. I want to ask this question and I, 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 I'm not sure you can tell me if it's not an answerable question. Mm -hmm. Um, What is it about, being in nature or being alongside nature that allows for trauma to heal. Mm. Like if, if we're, if we're like putting, uh, you're, you're yes. beginning to put language to, yes. to something. And, and I'm, I'm fascinated by it. You know, I, yes. I've been, I've been, I've been 
researching a lot about horticultural therapy and things yes. like that. But what is it about being in nature, along nature, alongside nature that that allows that that space for trauma to be faced? Yes. To be to be admitted mm-hmm. um, and to ultimately at least begin the process of healing. Yes. No, that's an excellent question. I do think about that often. I feel the, the, the challenge of trauma is that it, it lives in us. It's so internal. So it happens outside of us or many of us, but then it just begins to reside. I told a friend of mine who's a therapist recently, I said, I just feel like my trauma is under my skin. So it seems to kind of take residence inside of us. And I believe that one thing nature does, one thing that being out and exposed to, I guess, the the natural world around us is that it takes us outside of ourselves. Uh We literally, many of us abide with our trauma. We are, we co-inhabit our bodies along with our trauma. Like, come on, come on, trauma. Let's go to bed, right? <laughs> come on, anxiety. Come on, everybody. It's time to go to bed. Time to go to sleep in the morning. Good morning, trauma, right? Like, good morning, mm-hmm. heartache. You know, mm-hmm. that's that mm-hmm. song. So we we coexist. We co, you know, we reside alongside trauma's existence, literally kind of like, <sighs> operates to the beat of our our hearts and to the the depth of our breath like it's right there and i think stepping outside requires us to step outside of ourselves thus leaving trauma to fend for itself right yeah. so that's one thing i i can step outside and i am initially noticing what i'm noticing and distracted by what's out here but once i've noticed and been distracted i begin to focus i begin to realize like how large this tree is. And I start thinking about this tree, like how long has this tree been here? And I start thinking about, you know, I'm in Houston and we've had hurricanes. Gosh, this tree has been through a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And so I start to think about the, the um, staying power and the resiliency and the strength of nature. And I believe those that language that I see in nature, I begin to apply to the things um, inside of me. Mm-hmm. And so I think nature gives us space. It pulls us out of ourselves. I think it gives us perspective and it gives us language. I I started my backyard garden kind of late. Just wasn't, my mind wasn't in it, but I knew I was going to plant something. And I'm telling you when I decided, I was like, okay, all right, let me hurry up. Like (laughs) we got to get going. The first thing I did, um, we had planted in this area before, but I began to break the ground. Um, I wanted to break it um, because we hadn't done anything to it for several, several months. And so I'm breaking the ground. And I realized that right now, that was my favorite part of gardening, Hmm. to break the ground, right? Hmm. Um, To literally throw, you know, throw this tool over my shoulder and to break the ground. And to know that as, as wild and as random and almost as reckless as this motion is, this work is, Hmm. it is absolutely essential to the growth of whatever it is I put in the soil. And so there's something that nature does that this, this language it gives us about what it means to be essential, what it means to have grace. The ground to me has grace because most of us are not experts in in when it comes to planting and growing, but if we just give effort God gives us grace in the ground. So, mm. yeah, I, I, it's a little bit, you know, that answer is kind of, mm. kind of big, but yes, I believe that, that nature takes us outside of ourselves and we begin to get uncomfortable with this co-habitation that we've had with our trauma. We want to work it out. Um, I think that nature gives us a vocabulary and examples of resiliency and examples of joy. You know, the sun is this quintessential example of joy, right? And Mm. warmth. So it gives us that language. And it also gives us um, an opportunity to, to experience, I think, the grace and the mercy and the love that God God has available to us, but because we are heart and ground or unable to receive. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, it, it does a lot. And sometimes it does all of that 
in one deep breath when we step outside. And sometimes it takes a little bit more. It takes some running. It takes some growing. It takes some hiking. Um, it takes some swimming. But in all of it, I feel like there is a message. Thank you. That was a that was more than I could have more than I could have <laughs> asked for. I want I want to before I ask the last question. I want to yes. I want to kind of come back to this piece about eco theology because mm-hmm. uh, like like you said earlier you know this sounds this will sound to some people like it'll sound new agey it'll sound yes. hippie, it'll sound yeah. like but i think that the church is missing the boat yes on on, on embracing an eco theology and bringing it into the building so that the people in the building will go out of the building and yes. into nature talk mm-hmm. to me about where how do we how do we get eco theology into the language of the yes. church how do we yes. how do we make this more a part of of our common vernacular i think the folks who the kind of folks who listen to this show you know mm-hmm. might have eco theology kind of yes in their world a little bit but mm-hmm. how do we make eco theology a part of of what it means to be people of faith. Yes, yes, that's good. When I really began to dig into this, I found two very different schools of thought. So I, in addition to connecting with MTSO, Methodist Theological School um, in Ohio, I connected with the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. um, MTSO was very, rather diverse, I won't say very diverse, but rather diverse um, in their leadership and their student population. They have like this anti-racism initiative, very, very, like a really great space where people are kind of learning and growing and challenging themselves. the University of the South is very white, um, much older, but both of these spaces are operating with this idea that sustainability and eco-theology and care creation are at the center of their work. Now, in the space with University of um, the South, I remember having a dialogue. I'm in a cohort where we're, we're doing some work and learning about like iconography iconography, you know, nature as an icon, you know, how to use nature as a lens to, to, um, to approach God. And so I loved this idea, but I remember telling them at the very beginning, you know, many of us, unfortunately in the, in the black church tradition, um, don't have the space or the bandwidth to think about nature and God and all of this stuff, because we're so busy surviving. Mm-hmm. And the so the bigger answer and the nearly impossible answer is, gosh, if we could just get to thrive, get past surviving, get to thriving, maybe we could think about ministry and theology a little differently, a little more openly. But black bodies are still being, you know, killed in broad daylight, and they're still redlining, and they're still, um, you know, food apartheid. And so these things are still happening to us. And so all we really have a chance to do is just, you know, (laughs) pray and proselytize and go home, right? (laughs) Um, So that's that's the bigger question. But the other, I mean, the bigger answer is like, if we could just be I think we would yeah. be open. If you would just let us be, yeah. we could be open to ministry. You know, we can do That's Jesus right. as a friend of mine too. Like we can actually be friends. But right now, like I still need Jesus as my savior because I need to be saved right? <laughs> from this circumstance. And they That's have a chance surreal. to, kind of, it's kind of weird, but they have a chance to be friends with Jesus. Mm. And we're still begging Jesus to save mm. us, right? Mm. So that mm. gets mm. in our way mm. of being open to other ways of, of, of worship um, in a practical sense. Wow, that's so profound. Yeah, yeah. Apart from that, however, I think that we just need to be practical. Um, one of the, the class that I took at MTSO was with Dr. Heber Brown. I know that you're familiar with him and his and his work. And so, you know, what I appreciate about his dialogue, and, and you've heard it on, on several ways, and I think actually on here as well, is the practicality of ministry that he's talking about. People are hungry, we should feed them. Um, that type of thing. And that is part of our theology. Mm-hmm. Um, feeding the hungry and healing the sick. Um, But I think that we have to dig a little deeper and not just kind of give them food, but give them systems. So if we keep 
talking in the church about how do we answer these, this question of healing body through food, because that is our theology. That's, that is our ministry. We love the miracle of the two fish and the, and the, you know, lo- the loaves of bread. Like we love that miracle. Mm-hmm. And that miracle can still happen with us. So I think that we need to pull away from thinking that it is a miracle alone and say that this can just, this can be our work. Mm. You know, this, how do we, how do we make the miracles of Christ, the practical miracles of Christ where, where Jesus met needs our daily work because we are familiar with and love those stories, but they're not stories for story's sake. They are examples of how we should show up in the world. So we don't have to tell new stories. We don't have to, you know, I mean, well, of course, we could always dig a little deeper, you know, biblically. <laughs> but we take the stories that we know and we say, okay, God, now how do we just do this? How do we answer this? How do we apply this story in this congregation, in this community, um, and and quit making it so big? I think we get overwhelmed by big, but these huge initiatives. No, how do we do this right here? And then once we get that done well, being willing to share that with everyone else and not operate in this in this ethic of 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 scarcity and well, we figured it out. Y'all can figure it out too. That's not Christ-like. That's what not what we know. We're community. So figure it out. How do you how did you learn to feed your congregation? How did you provide them with things that helped them to heal their bodies? Now tell us how you did it. So we can do it over here. So yeah, I think getting away from the idea that, that the miracles of Christ are so far-fetched and so beyond us and were just for Christ, and understand that they are examples of what we are to do and how we're to show up in the world and just do those things. I think that is, is an easy dialogue that would be challenging at all. Mm, absolutely. Love that. I could talk to you forever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I do want to be respectful. Wonderful. <laughs> I, do, I do want to be respectful of your time. Um, uh, so we, we end all of our conversations with this question of what gives you hope and mm-hmm. and not a hope that is um, ignoring the world's problems, not a hope mm-hmm. that is turning a blind eye to the issues of the world, but a hope that gives you the resilience to mm-hmm. get up in the morning to face those challenges. So what's giving yes. you hope? Here's an example of the hope. After when, when the pandemic hit and the world shut down, and we had to go inside out of fear and necessity. I remember stepping outside maybe a week or so after the the shutdown and the earth looked different. It looked like Bambi, like a scene from Bambi. The birds (laughs) were chirping, the squirrels were frolicking. You know what I'm saying? The sky was a, a beautiful blue. The grass was greener just because we stepped back and we gave it a second to rest. The hope is that God is patient and patiently waiting for us to heal and if and, and to, to sit back, to reflect and to prepare to be whole and to heal. Um, and he's shown that, well, God's shown that in the way that nature does that. The hope is that God is right here waiting patiently. And that allows me to say today wasn't the best day, but tomorrow the sun will rise Mm -hmm. and the birds will sing. The grass didn't stop growing just because this, you know, initiative did not go forth. Um, The wind still blows that that nature continues to show us that life goes on and can go on well if we live in community and respect of this space. Like mm. I open my eyes and the world is still there, no matter if my eyes are swollen from tears the night before, mm. right? God is still there and and ever present. That gives me such hope. And that there are people like us not afraid of having hard conversations in order to 
get results, not afraid to be the vessel to do the work in order to see these things come to pass. I love when I randomly come to somebody and I can say eco-theology or I can say food apartheid and I can say, (laughs) you know, whatever. And they're like, oh, oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about that. And there there are few of us but it's growing. So God gives us hope in every new day and every new morning um, and gives us just enough people so that when we think we're talking to ourselves, we look up and there's someone else to talk to about. (laughs) (laughs) That is is so very true. That's so very true. Thank you. Tell people how they can connect with your work, how they can connect with you and all of the great things that the Heirloom Foundation is about. Okay, wonderful. So the Heirloom Foundation does have a website. It is www.theheirloomfund.org, www.theheirloomfund.org. We are also on Instagram at The Heirloom Foundation, on Facebook with the same name, The Heirloom Foundation, and LinkedIn, The Heirloom Foundation. Often when I post or on my pages, there will be a link to donate. We are a 501c3, um, so there is a link to donate. And at this point, um, all of our efforts are in, in energy is on programming, um, on growing these spaces, and eventually, like I said, long-term to create a physical space, um, natural space of healing, um, of peace for us uh, so that we can continue to um, grow and thrive in wherever we are in our lives. So please make sure you visit every one of those spaces, but please make sure you follow on those social media um, networks because you know how important it is for us to grow our fellowship. So thank you so much. Yeah. And, uh, you know, once, once you have that physical space, would love to have you back on and just kind of hear what you're doing in that space. Because I, I love the idea of thank being you. able to get people out of their homes, out into the world, out in nature to do some of this healing work. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your story and your heart. And uh, this has been a real, real joy and pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate your work. So blessings to you and all that you all do. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plainsong Farm, the Garden Church, and the Keep and Till. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.